Greetings, sisters in Christ. It's a delight to speak to you today and to join you even in this remote electronic format. I pray that the Lord is with you in these strange times and bizarre season. And I'm looking forward to sitting with Philippians 2, 3 through 18 with you today. Before we get started, let's begin with prayer. This is a very old prayer, but it's a very rich one. So pray with me. God be in my head and in my thinking. God be in my eyes and in my looking. God be in my mouth and in my speaking. O God, be in my heart and in my understanding. Amen. So our passage for today is Philippians 2, 3 through 18. But I'll begin with verse 1. Last week, Anne talked about how verses 1 through 4 belong together, and I completely agree. So to give us a running start, I'll start in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. This passage has many treasures in it. We, or at least I, tend to gravitate to the famous hymn in verses 6 through 11. But it's important to remember that these verses function as an example of what Paul talks about in verses 1 through 4. So I'd like to walk us through the passage and to point out a few things. Verse 1 is one long sentence that begins with four conditional statements. That is, it begins with four if statements. If there is any encouragement in Christ, 
if there's any comfort from love, if any participation in the spirit, if any affection and sympathy. We may tend to read these as weak ifs, as though Paul is saying to the Philippians, well, you know, maybe if there's any encouragement, then maybe. But we should not read them this way. They are more like, you know it is true ifs. If there is any encouragement, and come on, you know there is. If there is any comfort from love, and come on, you know there is. If any participation in the spirit, if any affection and sympathy, and come on, you know there is. It's a strong wind-up to the point after the then. He gets to his point by admonishing them to make his joy complete in verse 2. Remember, joy is a major theme of this letter. As Paul sits in prison, he writes to them about joy. Here again, he references joy in the life of the follower of Christ. Now, the way they will make his joy complete, Paul tells them, is by growing into being of like mind. This phrase, being of like mind, is one word in Greek. It's phroneo, which means literally to think, but really more something like to live harmoniously or to be like-minded, to share the same mind. This same Greek word gets repeated later in verse 2, and it emphasizes the, the concept all the more. And in fact, this word, this word phroneo, is a major theme in Philippians. Some commentators point out that Philippians accounts for nearly half of all Pauline uses of the verb. It gets used to describe Paul's attitude toward the Philippians in 1-7, and it also gets used to describe their attitude toward him in, in chapter 4, verse 10. The phrase being like-minded could lead us to think that this is just a heady word. That is, if we have the right beliefs, we will lead the good Christian life. Or that being of the same mind could sound something like a Christian mind meld. But that's not the case at all. There are two things to remember about this verb, phreneo, that we're supposed to take on. The word refers to more than mere mental effort. The word refers to moral development as well. Not only believing in Christ, but also behaving in, the, in a manner that is worthy of Christ. The word touches on the formation of the mind and intellect, but it also touches on the formation into a particular pattern of living. So notice also that making his joy complete by being like-minded refers to their life together, being formed and living in such a way that they experience unity in Christ. Remember how immediately before this passage in Philippians 1, 27 through 30, Paul is talking about unity, life together, and the role of suffering in that unity. I think it's tempting to read this passage in chapter 2, particularly verses 1 through 18, as referring to individual response to Christ and individual life. But Paul is actually continuing to admonish and exhort the members of the Philippian church to live in unity and fellowship. Paul indicates that community is life-giving, and he wants it to be so for them. And the way they get about this is to follow Christ's pattern, to act like Christ, which is set forth in verses 5 through 11. These verses, verses 5 through 11, contain the beautiful Christ hymn. 
Now, there's been a lot of scholarly, scholarly literature that has developed an analysis and structure of these verses, and I'm not going to spend any time on that. Rather, I want to focus on how this passage serves to illustrate the kind of behavior Paul admonishes for the community. Here in verse 6, he says the Philippians should have the same mind, the same phreneo as Christ, who, having the same form as God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Rather, Christ empties himself in verse 7. That use of the reflexive here, himself, that he emptied himself, further emphasizes that Christ is the one that did the emptying, which shows an essential characteristic and attribute of God. Christ, or God, fully identifies with humanity. And the Philippians are to have that kind of humility toward each other. And by extension, so are we. Importantly, this is not a groveling humility, the kind where you run yourself down or give into self-abasement. C.S. Lewis points out that humility is not the trait of thinking less of yourself, of downplaying your gifts and talents, of not acknowledging the good gifts that God has given you. If you focus on thinking less of yourself, ironically, you're again focusing on yourself. It becomes another form of pride. In Mere Christianity, Lewis writes about humility, and I want to read you the quote. I've modified the language a bit for, for women, um, so just, just note that if you go back and look at Mere Christianity, I've changed the, the words a little bit. But this is what C.S. Lewis says about humility. Do not imagine that if you met a really humble woman, she will be what most people call humble nowadays. She will not be a sort of smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, she is nobody. Probably all you will think about her is that she seemed a cheerful, intelligent person who took a real interest in what you said to her. If you do dislike her, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. She will not be thinking about humility. She will not be thinking about herself at all. Perhaps you know someone like this. I think of some I think of my spiritual grandmother, the woman who introduced the gospel to my mother and mentored her. This woman, my spiritual grandmother, has mentored probably hundreds of women and plays a vital role in my mother's life and my life to this day. When people praise her, I have never heard her downplay her ministry or say, "Oh, it's nothing. It's not a big deal." When people praise her, she simply smiles says, thanks be to God, and asks what's happening in your life. In this kind of exploration of humility that C.S. Lewis gives, I think he gets at an interesting point. True humility has an external focus on God as its source and its strength. And in the Christ hymn, Christ provides the quintessential example of this. He is both the foundation of the unity and the one who enables it. In verses 12 through 13, then, Paul makes a vital shift. He begins this section after the Christ hymn by addressing the Philippians as beloved. The NIV has friends, but the word here is beloved, those who are deeply loved by God and also by Paul. Paul proceeds to say that they should work out their own salvation. Now, this verse can make good Presbyterians uncomfortable, 
What are we trying to earn our salvation? Isn't that precisely not the point of the gospel? It is, and that's certainly not Paul's point here. He proceeds to talk about how God is at work in them. And he repeats that God is at work twice. So the reason they can work out their salvation is because God is already at work in them. God has made the first move toward them. So having reminded the Philippians, and by extension us, of this fact, Paul proceeds to give them specific instructions for their life together. And he says, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Ouch. Grumbling and complaining comes easily, especially in these days in the middle of a pandemic. The pandemic has made everything complicated. Even simple things like grocery shopping are now logistical hassles. I myself find myself more easily frustrated these days, both with myself and with others. And as the writers of our study remind us, complaining robs us of joy. To complain, especially against each other, is not part of conforming to Christ. But sisters, God is rich in mercy. Like Paul and the Philippians, we already have Christ. We are already given an immense gift the immense gift. We are able to follow Christ's example of humility and submitting to each other because Christ did it first. Christ, again, is both the foundation and the means of our life, both individually and together. For me, it's easy to lose sight of Christ and his example for us, especially in these hectic and stressful days. One thing that helps me remember is song. And so I'd like to close with a hymn that reminds me of who Christ is. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you. I'll just read it. It's a newer hymn called You, Lord, Are Both Lamb and Shepherd. It was written by a hymn writer and pastor named Sylvia Dunstan. Early in her life, she realized she didn't have a talent for writing music, so she focused on writing lyrics. And I think this hymn is a culmination of that practice. It captures so beautifully the mystery of who Christ is and the strange juxtapositions. It reminds us that this strange paradox is the foundation and the means of our life together. So let me close by reading this and praying this hymn together with you. You, Lord, are both lamb and shepherd. You, Lord, are both prince and slave. You, peacemaker and sword bringer, of the way you took and gave. You, the everlasting instant, you whom we both scorn and crave. Clothed in light upon the mountain, stripped of might upon the cross, shining in eternal glory, beggared by a soldier's toss. You, the everlasting instant, you who are both gift and cost. You who walk each day beside us, sit in power at God's side. You who preach a way that's narrow, have a love that reaches wide. You the everlasting instant, you who are our pilgrim guide. Worthy is our earthly Jesus. Worthy is our cosmic Christ. Worthy your defeat and victory. Worthy still your peace and strife. You, the everlasting instant, 
you who are our death and life. Amen.